Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters. How? By gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so that you can create products that customers love. Because no one wants to be wasting their time, right? Wasting their time creating a product that customers don't love, and for customers wasting their time with a product that they don't really value. We are out to tackle that. And in this discussion, we're discussing two topics, actually, one to help you be more successful personally and another to help your organization be more successful. The first examines five behaviors to be a better innovator, something that you can use personally in any context. And the second is breaking through barriers in your organization that limit innovation and the effectiveness of product managers. Our guest for this discussion is Scott Anthony. He's a senior partner at InnoSight, based in the firm's Singapore office. If you're unfamiliar with InnoSight, this is the innovation consultancy created by Clayton Christensen, the father of disruptive innovation and Harvard Business School professor. The insights that Scott shares with us is from a new book he co-authored with a title that is perfect for this podcast. It's Eat, Sleep, Innovate. As everyday innovators, we see innovation opportunities each day at our product management work, our innovation work. We're looking for them all the time. And that notion is conveyed so well in this title, Eat, Sleep, Innovate. So I hope you enjoy hearing more about these insights from that book. And do remember, if you want to go back to anything specific, we take detailed notes for you. We also prepare a one-page action guide for you so you can start taking action on key concepts right away. You'll find both of those resources at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 301. Now, let's talk with Scott. Scott, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Chad, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I am really interested in this book. So that you co-authored recently, I happen to have my hands on a copy for anyone seeing it in the video here, right? Called Eat, Sleep, Innovate, How to Make Creativity an Everyday Habit Inside Your Organization. Love the subtitle, but the, the main titles that really caught my attention, right? Because this podcast is called The Everyday Innovator. And it's really about all of us that are in this product innovation world, that we are everyday innovators. And, and I view that as we're kind of wired differently. We look at things and go, oh, I I think I can make that better? Or why hasn't anyone solved that problem before? Uh, you know, how, how, let, let's start thinking about that, right? And we just kind of approach innovation that way on a daily basis. And when I saw the title, that kind of made me think of the same sort of thing. I'm curious uh, just what that title meant to you, how, th- how you came up with that, what that one means to you. I, I got to be completely honest, Chad. It, it was not the title that we suggested to our, our editor. So I give mm-hmm. full credit to Kevin Average for pushing us to come up with that title. Our original title was something boring, like Unleashing Innovation or Hacking Innovation or something like that. Very Harvard Kevin, Press uh, sounding, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, exactly. That's what, that's what we thought. And, you know, and, and to Kevin's credit, he said, look, there, there's something bigger in this book. And you need a catchier title than that. And the idea is about how do you make the behaviors that drive innovation, success, and everyday habit. Mm-hmm. So he proposed eat, sleep, innovate. The idea is you eat every day, you sleep every day. Why aren't you innovating every day? And I think it's a brilliant title, and I, I take no credit for it. I just said yes <laughs> when somebody smarter than me came up with the, the proposed title. Very good. Good job. They're saying yes. And uh, kudos to Harvard Business Press for coming up with a creative and engaging title. 
So fitting of an innovation book. And uh, I want to dive into the topics that you tackled in that book. There's a few ways to come about this. One is you you talk about hacks for innovators and how to just be more innovative oriented, I think. So we could discuss hacks. I think that'd be useful. And also, okay, so that's one. And then was curious about going down the path of barriers. Uh, Organizations have this tendency, especially as they grow, to create more barriers to innovation. And maybe we can tackle what to do about that. So want to start with hacks? Sounds great. Okay. So maybe some of your favorites you could share with us. You know, so first definition. So we define innovation in the book as something different that creates value. And that is a purposefully broad definition So something means it's not just new products. It's not just new technology. It can be new ways to market, new ways to organize meetings, et cetera. Different reminds us that while great leaps forward and breakthroughs are great, you can also simplify things. You can streamline things. You can make complicated things accessible, et cetera. And creates value reminds us that it isn't just the idea. You actually have to go and do something with it and Mm -hmm. increase revenues or profits or engagement or whatever. So we start with that as a definition. We then say that if you look at what innovators do to do something different that creates value, there's five basic behaviors they follow. They're curious. They're questioning the status quo. They're customer obsessed so they can find problems that are worth solving. They're collaborative because if you want a great idea, you need to work at the intersections. They're adept at ambiguity because we know every idea is partially right and partially wrong. And they're empowered because you can't do something different that creates value unless you actually go and do something. And once you take the time to lay out the definition and get into those specific behaviors, some of the hacks begin to be pretty self-evident. So let's just take one of those behaviors, and we can, of course, go into more of them if you'd like. But just take curious for a second. So simple hack. Just make a regular habit of asking prompting questions that can open up avenues for innovation. And we know what those things are, how might we or why or why not. It's just having a mind that looks at things and says, huh. That's really all it is. Or being just a little bit positively paranoid. You know, Andy Grove famously said only the paranoid survive. And there's some truth to that. But if you're too paranoid, you see threats around every corner. It makes you really rigid. So having a habit of saying, okay, what do I need to be worried about? And then how do I reframe it? So this is a good thing and not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the current time that we have now, when we're in the midst of a global pandemic, this has never been more important because it is very easy to get into a cycle of despondency. And yeah, there's a lot of bad things going on, no doubt about that. But there's also a lot of interesting things going on. There's a lot of possibilities that are opening up. There's a lot of chances for us to reset, rewire, and do very different things Mm -hmm. if we keep the positivity in what we're doing. So that's just one example of just little mental tricks to begin to see opportunities to innovate. And there's, of course, a lot more we can talk about related to it. Yeah, sure. And we'd love to maybe hit some of the other areas, too. Speaking of the pandemic and being curious right now, there are a lot of opportunities, right? And I've talked to so many business owners, people in executive positions in innovation. Many of them are kind of overwhelmed in the sense of they're just, you know, had to redirect their organization. But at the same time, many of them have some slack time that they haven't had before. And they're thinking about, you know, what, what is the next thing we should be doing? Right. And that's leading to a lot of interesting ideas. So so I'm excited to see where things are in a year or two, right? 
Now, I see you know, a lot of this comes down to individual mindsets. And I was talking yeah. to a friend of mine who runs Australia for a, a big company, and, and, and she was saying, you know, the way this world feels to me right now is like someone took all the cards and threw them up in the air, and I can now do whatever I want. I mean, the, the rule book has been thrown out. We're creating a new one. Mm-hmm. Now, that can feel like very intimidating, can feel scary. Where do you start? Or it can feel like I got a blank piece of paper and I can go and fill it in. So, you know, if you realize the opportunity and you recognize if you go and study past big events like this, every time there are tremendous opportunities for those who think and act in the right way, then you at least have the hope that can lead you to the future. Is it hard? Of course. Are there bad days? Of course. But there also are plenty of possibilities as well. Yeah, and they fit your five behaviors, right? It's being curious about the moment. How does these things change? Collaborative, really important because the, the lone wolf innovator doesn't really exist in history. We don't see that too often. And it takes other people to stimulate ideas and, and reframe things. Um, so give us some of the hacks about, about being collaborative. Yeah, and this is a great moment for being collaborative, right? Because, you know, when we're in a world where everybody is temporarily, <laughs> cross fingers, temporarily digitally displaced, Going and connecting with somebody is simple. You don't have to go and fly somewhere. Everyone's kind of sitting in a place and you find a way to connect with them virtually. And that's all it really takes. So, you know, when we think about collaboration, we're fans of the Pablo Picasso quote, good artists copy, great artists steal. And it's collaboration with people. It's also collaboration with ideas. So one of the things that we suggest people do is assuming you've got a problem worth solving. You say, okay, the world would be better if we could just get this thing done for a customer. I wonder how we might do this. You try to find somebody who's already solved that problem. It might be in a different industry context. It might be something that comes from nature, wherever it comes from. But you try to go to the source where somebody's got something, got inspiration that you can bring from one context to another. And the example we talk about in the book Fiona Fairhurst was hired by Speedo. She was given a task of coming up with a swimsuit that can propel swimmers through the water more rapidly. She went to study an animal that's really big but goes through the water really rapidly. She studied sharks. And it turns out sharks don't have smooth skin. They have these things called denticles on them that propel them through the water. So Fairhurst took what occurred in nature, applied it to the Speedo fast skin suit, and the rest is history. So that's the idea in collaboration. You try to find inspiration from the outside, whether that's by talking to humans, whether it's by reading things that are disconnected. When you've got an innovation problem on the mind, you'll find an uncommon solution that you can borrow and adapt to that problem. So that's some of the hacks in that area. That's really good. And that's a good curious question to add to, to the list too, right? You know, where can we find inspiration maybe in nature and, and what can we mimic and, and leverage? So. Uh, good ideas there. Okay. Your, your definition of innovation is trust value. And that's something that we always talk about on this podcast too, right? The, what we do is to create value for the customer. And in turn, that creates value for the organization and you as well. And so that leads us to that customer focus piece. So that was the second one. I wanted to go back to that one too. What are some good hacks for being more customer focused? Yeah, it's absolutely imperative too, because you know if you don't understand what the customer values then you really run the risk of innovating for innovation's sake. And you come up with something that looks cool to you, but nobody cares about it. They won't pay money for it, et cetera, et cetera. So a couple of the basic things that we suggest in the customer obsessed category, one is just to increase the amount of time you spend with customers. And you can strike the word customer and replace it with a colleague, a supplier, a coworker, a stakeholder, whatever, because everybody has somebody they're trying to serve. 
And what great innovators do is they try to have empathetic understanding for the person they're trying to serve. Not going to them and saying, what do you want? What idea can I give to you? But really trying to understand in language of our late great founder, Clayton Christensen, what is the job that they are struggling to get done? What is the problem they're struggling to serve? So that's the basic simple tip. Just spend more time with people. Then as you're spending time with them, it's really focusing on the problem versus the solution. And there are great tools out there like customer journey maps and customer profiles that can help you just get more nuanced understanding of what are problems worth solving. So just use the tools. I mean, this is one of the great things about being an innovator in 2020. There are so many well-documented, easily accessible tools, customer journey maps, business model, canvas, a whole range of things that you can find very easily that help you ask the right questions, help you make sense of information, and give you confidence that you've got a way to go and do something different that creates value. So those are some of the things we suggest in the customer obsessed category. Right. I'm so much enjoying going through some of these hacks with you that I want to keep keep going through some more. But I appreciate you sharing the tools there. You know, every now and then I run across a product manager who is a little bit uncomfortable, you know, in their own skin, interacting with customers, right? That they just haven't done that yet. And getting a handle on some tools is helpful because then you kind of know what to walk through. But the other aspect of that for me has always been back to your first behavior. It's curiosity and just being curious about the problem that they're having. As you said, we're not asking, you know, what do you want? <laughs> we're, we're trying to understand what the problem is that they have and what they're trying to accomplish, you know, in solving that problem. And then we can do a good job designing something of value for them. And so just being curious goes along so well with that, too. Okay, so behaviors. Curious, we've covered. Customer-focused, collaborative. Could you give us a few about uh, adapting ambiguity? Yeah, so the, the basic idea here is a truism in the world of innovation is when you're trying to do something different that creates value, in the early days, your idea is going to be a little bit right and a little bit wrong. And you're not going to know which part is which. And the tendency you will have, particularly if you're in a large established organization, is to try to solve that problem analytically. So try to go and do the best research you can, talk to the best experts you can, do very elaborate financial forecasts, try to plan your way through it. It doesn't work. The quote we remind people of as we talk about the challenge here is the quote from the great American philosopher, actor, and occasional boxer, Mike Tyson, who once said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And the punch the would-be innovator receives is if you try to get to truth through analysis, you realize that you missed something, that there was an assumption you were making that you didn't recognize. So the core of being adept in ambiguity is recognizing that you have to follow what's known academically as an emergent strategy where you discover truth through controlled experimentation. So the specific ways you do that, you start with asking the question, what is it that I don't know? What are the assumptions that I'm making? And take the time to be honest about it. We're not good at humans at this. We, we always overestimate how much we know. So it's being really critical about what are the few things you know, what are the many things you're assuming, and then finding as effective, as efficient a way to go and experiment around it. And it doesn't have to be a complicated experiment. You know, we use by metaphor in the book, we talk about the Wright brothers, how when the Wright brothers solved the problem that had perplexed humanity for millennium, the idea that birds could fly, but humans couldn't, they were very good disciplined experimenters. Before they built planes, they flew kites and gliders. So metaphorically, you want to say, what's the kite and glider that I can do where I take less risk? It might be trying something yourself before you ask your team to do it. It might be having your team do it before your whole company does it. 
a minimum viable product, whatever, lots of different ways to do it. Also in the Wright Brothers story, they hacked together in 1901 a cardboard box, bicycle spoke wire, and a fan and created what we now would call a wind tunnel which allowed them in a lab to test 200 different types of wing designs using 30 different approaches and generate real data that led to breakthrough insights. So the question then metaphorically you ask is what is a way in which you can experiment more effectively and efficiently? And that might be creating a model or a simulation, creating a lab, having a customer that you know you can always go to with an early stage product, whatever. But if you keep this metaphor in mind that you say, I wanna find the assumptions, the things I don't know, I want to look for kites. I want to build wind tunnels. That's what helps you be adept in ambiguity. I love the stories there, how the Wright brothers use experiments. And just this notion of using experiments is so important. Obviously, it's been around a long time. I think it kind of came into our product development world through Lean more recently. And this idea of you know getting out of the office, finding out what the customer wants, engaging with them in, in real, real life, but then doing experiments to test those hypotheses and get some information and, and do it cheap and fast. With my university hat on, I, I teach a product strategy class for graduate students at Colorado State University. And so often, and I, I think a lot of us used to do this, I uh, certainly did. The first thing we think of is, well, we'll build a prototype, a functioning prototype of the product, and then get feedback on it. Well, we've invested a lot to get to a functioning prototype to make that happen. And there's probably some experiments that are really fast and low cost to get us there, to get us ideas and information before we get to the functioning prototype. Absolutely agree. Just one example that, that, again, you can steal. So one of the things that Amazon does when it's working on new ideas is it writes future press releases. So it says, imagine you're writing the press release for what the product is going to look like when you actually launch it. And you got to detail all the customer benefits and detail the way in which you're going to compete in the market, et cetera. And that is the essential equivalent of a super low resolution prototype. We actually did this at Insight. We had an idea to go and create a, a new digital offering and we wrote a future press release for the digital offering. When we read what we had written, we said, there's no market for this. We described mm. something that nobody would be interested in. We didn't have to build an actual functioning prototype to do it. It was very clear when you saw the words on paper, it just wasn't a very good idea fine, we can go and take a different approach. And we're now on the fourth iteration of this idea. And that's the way these things work. But I think you're exactly right. There are very simple ways to fly the kites, to learn more, and very quickly then be able to discard things that aren't going to work and begin to iterate towards things that will. Okay, so we're having so much fun with hacks, we can't leave empowered, not touch. So tell us something about empowered. Yeah. So, you know, th this basically is forgiveness, not permission, right? This is saying you just got to find ways to get stuff done. And to me, more than anything else, this is where you just really need innovators who have a mindset that they're going to figure out ways in a constrained environment to just do stuff. And one of the things that this is the, the big shift, it gets back to what we were just talking about. People say, well, you know, I need to make a, a multimillion dollar ask inside the company before I can do anything. And therefore, I'm stuck. But you ask the question, you know, what can I do for nothing? And if you look at the world of startups today, many of the startups that embrace lean startup principles and so on, they're getting off the ground spending basically nothing because all the freely available tools that are out there mean that you can come up with the first version, you can get your first customer, you can have the first iteration of what you're doing without spending money. So the problem is not resources. The problem is mindset. So mm -hmm. it is that mindset that says, yes, even though I might perceive that there are obstacles, I'm just going to go and figure out how to get stuff done. As one of my clients once said to me, he said, I love it when I hit roadblocks, because if I hit roadblocks, it means that I'm moving somewhere. 
if I don't have any roadblocks, I'm just kind of sitting there. So to me, it's how do you figure out in a scrappy way to just begin to get stuff done? That's one tip. The other tip that I think is important here is ultimately, if you're inside an organization of any scale, if you're the person who's got the idea, you're going to have to build an alliance, a coalition. You're going to need to get other people behind you. So making sure that you invest the time to have the story, the story about why this is a compelling idea, that's something that can really build followership and can begin to build momentum behind ideas. So it's the forgiveness, not permission, just get stuff done and find ways to tell compelling stories so your idea can get followership. Those are some of the ways that you can make sure that it isn't just something in a piece of paper, it isn't just something in your brain, it's something that begins to get real. And you can actually, again, go and do something, which is a prerequisite to do something different that creates value. Yeah, that's really good. I'm, I'm glad I asked about that because it leads in well to our barrier discussion, right? It's like asking forgiveness, not permission. I was doing some work for an organization to try to understand their innovation process and, and help them improve that. And I was looking at examples that they identified as, you know, their success stories. Well, well how did this, this thing happen, right? And the answer always was, we didn't tell anyone about it until it was too late for them to, to stop it because they had too many barriers in place and that would have stopped it sooner. So that was the uh, uh, forgiveness, not permission thing. I love the insights that Scott is sharing with us. I want to extend on one of the behaviors he shared, being customer-focused. That has been one of the core pillars of the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. This is a nine-week journey, meeting virtually for 75 minutes a week. I take groups of product managers and organizations on this journey, building a broad foundation of product management knowledge, improving their collaboration, and exposing them to a new customer focus. Many organizations have found value in the RPM experience, including Motorola. A product director there shared, I had to get my team performing well for a high-stakes, tight-deadline product project. I wanted a full perspective and not a narrow focus that others provide. The RPM experience delivered, and now we have expanded it to all of our product managers. I recommend it to anyone. Wow, I love that. If you have product managers and want to improve their performance, then go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM to get more information and schedule time with me so we can talk. Now, let's see what other tips Scott has for us. Barriers. Organizations do erect these barriers, not necessarily purposely uh, for innovation, but they slow us down. They get in our way. How can we help you know, shift that culture? What, what are the techniques, tools for working on this? So I'm going to give you two phrases, and then I'll, I'll walk through each of them. So the okay. shadow strategy is phrase one. Beans is phrase two. So the, those are the two ideas that basically cover chapters two, three, and four of Eat, Sleep, Innovate. You should still read the book, but this gives you the highlights of the book. So the shadow strategy, the basic idea here is the enemy of innovation inside organizations is institutionalized inertia. Innovation is something different that creates value. Organizations are not wired to do something different. They are wired to do what they are currently doing better, faster, cheaper. All the systems, all the structures, all the things inside an organization mutually reinforce to perpetuate today, not to create tomorrow. And this is why we call it the shadow strategy. Even if your intended strategy, even if what you say is we want to go in bold new directions, we want to do completely different things, the way in which you're allocating resources, the way in which you're spending time, what marketers market, what engineers engineer, what finance finances, all of those things, those day-to-day decisions 
are all designed, again, to do today a little better, not to make tomorrow different. Not out of malice, not out of malice. People are trying to do the right thing, but it is a very pernicious enemy you have to fight. And it results in institutionalized inertia, where instead of doing something different, where instead of following these behaviors, you just keep doing what you have always done. And again, that has been usually for most organizations, a fine recipe that led to success, but it inhibits future success. So that's the enemy, institutionalized inertia, the shadow strategy. The answer we suggest in the book rips a page out of the behavior change literature and says you have to go and hack the habits inside your organization. You have to break that inertia by planting a bean. A bean is a behavior enabler, artifact, and nudge. So the behavior enabler activates Daniel Kahneman's system two, where you have to consciously think about doing something different. It's a ritual. It's a checklist. It's a community that helps you do the hard work of behavior change. Artifacts and nudges get to system one, the reflex, the quick action, the things you do without thinking, where you use things like gamification. You use things like visual reminders. You use all the quiet, hidden things that push you in a different direction, even without you realizing it. And in the book, we've got 101 different beans that help to encourage these innovative behaviors, that help to break some of the challenges of inertia, that we hope people steal profligately and plant inside their organization to go and encourage those innovation behaviors. And of course, I'm happy to go into more details about some of our favorites, but that's the basic idea. Defeat the shadow strategy with beans. Okay. So 101, that's a lot of beans to address. The, you know, as you were talking through that, I was thinking of maybe some big beans. I don't know if the, they make it the list or not, like open innovation. They, they certainly are nudging us in new directions because we're getting that external input, right, by talking to people outside the organization. Or what Adobe did with the, I forget its official title, but the red box. Yeah, kickbox, yeah. To kind of institutionalize the opportunity for innovation, you know, anyone that wants to pursue an idea now has a basically instruction guide and some uh, resources to get that done. Um, uh, the Adobe Kickbox, it is one of our favorite beans. Okay. So in chapter three, we have some of our favorites and Adobe Kickbox made the short list. As it, it does a great job of combining together the behavior enabler. So mm-hmm. if you're a participant in the Kickbox program, you do get this physical box and it's got checklists and tools and all the stuff that helps you do the hard work. But then there's the artifacts and nudges. You know, you've got the physical box that reminds you of things. You've got all the stories that exist within Adobe of people who have done it. There's just a whole set of legends around it. And there's a really powerful nudge in that inside the kickbox, there's a prepaid debit card that has a thousand US dollars loaded on it that you don't need to ask for anyone's permission to spend. So it's a very clear signal that you need to go forth and innovate. So yeah. the Adobe Kickbox is a great example. On open innovation, you know, there's a whole bunch of beans in the book about what encourages people to be more customer obsessed. One of the ones I like is OXO, you know, a company that makes things like kitchen equipment and utensils and so on. They have in their office, they have this whole artifact of lost gloves. And the lost gloves are just individual gloves that people find. And it reminds people at OXO that their customers have all sorts of different hand shapes and different sizes. And they have to really think about the customers when they're designing products because it ultimately is a real human being that's going to hold one of their utensils. So it's a nice little visual reminder to take a customer first perspective Mm -hmm. that when it's coupled with some formal things that OXO does to remind people of how you actually go and do it, ends up being a very powerful being. So the, the, the key thing here is you say, okay, we want open innovation. We want to be more collaborative. We want to look outside. 
what is a way in which we encourage people to make that a habit, to do it on a day-to-day basis? Because it's great to have an open innovation program, but it doesn't matter if no one actually does anything with it. That's one of the insights in the book. You know, one of the case studies that runs through it is DBS Bank, a big bank here in Singapore, that over the last 10 years has fundamentally transformed from being a stodgy, boring, regulated bank to being a true digital pioneer, functioning in the words of its CEO, Piyush Gupta, as a 28,000-person startup. And one of the co-authors of the book, Paul Cobbin, is the chief data and transformation officer at DBS. DBS did a lot. I mean, they changed technology, they changed organizational structure, et cetera, but they also worked really hard to systematically go and program behavior change using beans and other instruments. And one of Paul's reflections is, you can only change what your company does if you change what your people do. So you can change all the technology you want, but if you don't change the day-to-day behavior of the people in your organization, you're never going to get change that sticks and scales. And the great thing about a bean is that it really shrinks the challenge. I mean, it sounds kind of silly almost. It's so simple. But if you actually go and do it systematically to encourage specific behaviors, it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's a, there's a, some science certainly to changing habits, right, and gaining new behaviors. And there was something that you said said about the Adobe Kickbox thing that you talked about the legends, right? The stories they tell now, and that is such a powerful tool that if you can get to the point where people are sharing the stories of how this has made a difference, because that's how culture gets formed, right? Through through stories, and I can just imagine that there are some pro, some legendary legendary stories associated with Kickbox ideas, and that they just encourage everyone else to be part of that and kind of join in that innovation culture. Absolutely agree. And you know, one, one of my other co-authors, so Paul from DBS, one of my other co-authors, Natalie Painchot, longtime Intersight colleague, she heads up learning for our organization. She's a certified coach. One of the things she advises people to do is follow the basic ideas of appreciative inquiry. Rather than mm-hmm. trying to find problems to fix, you shine spotlights on what's working. You say, well, we could do this. Why don't we do more of it? And one of our arguments is once you see the definition of innovation, something different that creates value, you say, yeah, yeah, we've done things like that. We, we, we have maybe quiet innovation stories, maybe loud ones too, but, but we can be innovative. You shine a spotlight on what's working and say, well, why don't we do more of this? And it's mm-hmm. one of the things that I've just been thinking about a lot recently. You go back to March and April of this year when the whole world's grappling with COVID-19. And there's a world, there's a scenario where the world freezes, where supply chains don't hold, where we can't get things from place to place. But we figured it out, and we figured it out because there were millions of unsung innovation heroes that found creative ways to overcome problems. Like, how do we deal with border closures and all that? So I bet you every organization has amazing innovation success stories from earlier in 2020. Study that, replicate it, unleash the innovation heroes in your organization, because we need innovation more than we ever have in all of our history. Mm-hmm. That's really good. I'm a big fan of playing to our strengths as individuals and as organizations. And at least in the Western society, we, we tend to emphasize trying to improve our weaknesses more than anything and spotlighting what is working and then figuring out how you can leverage that to maybe better serve those customers or take it to a new market. Just do more of that. That's a good way to play to your strengths as well. Okay, I love all this. I really want to encourage people to get their hands on the book. I'm, uh, as listeners know, and, and you got the sense, I do my best to just skim through books ahead of time if I'm talking to an author, because I want this to be fresh to me too. It is, I just enjoy the discussion so much more. But I definitely want to 
to dig into this because I love the innovation examples. I love the specific tools that, that you talked about, and then just seeing the stories that you have brought into, into this as well. As listeners know, I also enjoy a good innovation quote. What did you bring for us and tell us what that means to you? Yeah, so the quote that I've decided to, to share is not me. It's from Scott Cook. Scott Cook is the founder and still active chairman of Intuit, a software company on the West Coast of the U.S., and he has a quote that he said in, I think, an interview with Bloomberg Business Week probably 13 years ago that just has really stuck with me. For every one of our failures, Scott said, we had spreadsheets that looked awesome. And the reason why it speaks to me is it gets set back to this point that we cannot discover truth about innovation analytically is the numbers will always work. You know that you can create a spreadsheet that looks good, but never forget a spreadsheet is nothing more than the mathematical relationship between largely made up assumptions. And a beautiful spreadsheet can hide a really ugly idea. And an ugly spreadsheet might be hiding a really beautiful idea. So you got to get out there and go and try things to discover truth, to discover beauty, and sometimes to discover ugliness as well. Yep. And use those five behaviors to create something new that is different, that creates value for your customer and your organization. Okay. Love all that. Uh, how can people get their hands on your book and find out more about what you do, the work that are at Intersight, and uh, other resources you may have? Yeah, the, the book is for sale at, at, at all fine retailers, so Amazon.com, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, we have a companion website, eatsleepinnovate.com, and then Intersight, which is the organization that I've been affiliated with for 17 years now. www.intersight.com has more on this book, books by my colleagues, the research and writing of our founder, Clayton Christensen, and, of course, all the things we've learned actually being in the field advising companies on these things. And I'm out there on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Great. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing all this, de- all these details. We tend to talk to authors a bit, uh, especially lately, it seems like, because maybe there are other places. But this is full of good practical tools, and I appreciate knowing about it and you bringing some of those tools to our listeners. Everyday innovators, uh, check it out. Uh, see if you want to get your hands on it and go through the tools yourself. Scott, thank you so much. Chad, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master. They do that by gaining practical knowledge, increasing their influence, and getting confidence in the process to create products that customers love. You'll find a detailed list of all the topics we talked about. We take the notes for you. Everything we talked about with Scott at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 301. There's also an action guide there to help you put the concepts into action more quickly. Again, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 301. And as always, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.